Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia, and today we have a great overview of Bitcoin trust planning with Brian Standing, trust and estates attorney and Bitcoiner for the last couple of years. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today at the Bitcoin Layer. Thank you very much. It's, uh, my my passions are are colliding right now, and I'm I'm going to try to stay cool. Excellent. But, uh, this is pretty exciting for me. <laughs> Excellent. Well, today we're really excited to explain to the audience what exactly Bitcoin has to do with estate planning. So at the Bitcoin layer, we are sponsored by Foundation Devices. They make a beautiful hardware wallet called the Passport. And we've been explaining to our viewers that they need to get their Bitcoin off of exchanges and into their own custody. And this is an incredibly important message that we have to deliver to people that want first layer money. They want a type of money that doesn't have any exposure to a counterparty. But once you get it into cold storage and you get it into self-custody, what do you do from there? There are so many considerations that we have as members of families, people that have to think about multi-generational storage of wealth, and just having it in a device, I would say, is not enough for most people. So that's why we have you on today. We want you to help us understand, once you get your Bitcoin into a cold storage device, what are the other implications that we need to consider? So let's start with your background. You're a trust and estates attorney. What do you do for a living for people? Yeah, no, and, and I, think, I think that intro kind of previews a lot of what we're gonna talk about. So I think we'll wind our way through custody issues, and maybe some tax concerns, maybe even talk about retirement plan and Bitcoin. I think there's some some information out there that, that probably we need to make our way to throughout this discussion. So hopefully people hang in there and, and absorb all of it. Um, as a as a background, as a start, you know, I would just say that I have what has turned out to be like one of the coolest jobs you can imagine. Uh, and I know a lot of people are not lucky enough to be able to say that, um, but. What's nice about being an estate planning attorney uh, is that people tend to come to me at really exciting moments in their life. Sometimes, obviously, sad moments, right, if someone passes away. But a lot of times it's, you know, starting a family, buying your first house, um, you know, starting your business. And there's some planning issues and protection that we want to think about. Um, and the other amazing thing about this job is that I get to sit down with people from all different backgrounds who are very successful and literally reflect on their life. Like how, how lucky is that? They get to sit down and talk to me about, you know, what they're proud of, um, you know, what, what, they, what mistakes they made, the things that are meaningful to them, and then in thinking about their legacy, how to create a plan that, that will have those sort of same meaningful things for their kids. Um, that's truly like an amazing insight. Like I'm getting as much from them as they're getting from me in how to structure this thing. Um, so uh, really grateful to be able to do that. Um, and then, you know, with, with some of my time, in addition to having a law firm and um, having a great partner uh, who helps run the law firm, um, I also do some, some wealth planning, which is basically, you know, an in-house service at uh, an RIA doing the same kinds of discussions, right? Talking about legacies, but without the, the burden of the sort of hourly rate, <laughs> which, you know, people don't love on the law side. Um, and so 
that's that's kind of where 2019 I came in first time ever into more of um, an, an investment advisory firm and it was totally eye-opening like I had no idea what was going on in the investment world so. and, and now you come across people that have Bitcoin and you've come across these types of clients for the last few years so first of all I just want to establish that you are working with generally speaking business owners and uh, high net worth individuals and those types of people that are looking for a broad investment portfolio yeah. and it makes complete sense that Bitcoin has found its way into the portfolio of some of your clients so tell us about your experience your first experience with Bitcoiners yeah well so the first experience is sort of pre-Bitcoin, right? It's coming in and, you know, I, I was in law land for 10 plus years and then I, I was getting a glimpse of, of what wealth management is about. And it's, it's amazing how much work it takes to do it the right way. So we're not talking, you know, like a 60-40 portfolio. We're talking about investing, right? Putting assets at risk, hopefully getting a return on that. And what it takes to do that is, I mean, truly an entire team of research and, and being thoughtful about everything. And so you have these companies that are effectively trying to create like a perfect savings account because obviously the goal is preserve wealth, maybe increase it, but you have these very successful people, as you mentioned, who now have to make their money all over again, right? They made all this money and they don't want to lose it so we have to create this perfect savings account to figure out how to you know, beat inflation and not lose purchasing power. And I, it was kind of like, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what the answer was. Um, and so in, in learning more about this industry, started to look at you know, gold having a place in a portfolio, um, you know, various asset classes. And then uh, there was no like light bulb moment like Bitcoin, it was just, I, just kind of just absorbed over time and then the more I would read the more I would say like well I gotta I want to know a little more about that and I just you know ultimately you fall down the rabbit hole and um, you know I did that probably earlier than most of my clients were into it because most of them probably came in if, it, if I remember correctly around 2021 right when there's a lot of hype um, and I was in there a little earlier than that um, which I'm thankful for because I needed to be able to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're dealing with people that allocate to Bitcoin, let's just first talk about Bitcoin versus crypto. And what what do you, you know, of course, explain how you went through that journey. And then what do you tell your clients when they ask you some of these questions around the asset class? Well, so, you know, I have to be careful. I have different hats. And in certain contexts, people might think I'm giving investment advice when I'm probably not. Um, they, if I'm giving legal advice, right, they've engaged me to do that, but I'm not gonna be telling them what they should or shouldn't invest in. Um, I might give tax advice uh, on the law firm side, um, but the, again, it's not about what you should or shouldn't invest, so I have to be careful, and I have clients who are in crypto, and that's totally fine. I, my job is to do what I can for them, to make sure they're protected, to make sure the you know transfer of authority over their various digital assets makes sense and it's not my place as their planning attorney to tell them what they should or shouldn't be doing um, and 
you know, all of that will sort of work itself out. Yeah. And to the extent that, that these projects have value, uh, they'll show them, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, I just have to be careful. Um, I don't want to overstep, sure. right? Um, people come to me for specific purposes, and I want to make sure they deliver on that. Um, so, yeah. So and Tell us about your personal experience. Uh, you know, we've talked about uh, Bitcoin versus crypto, and mm-hmm. what, how, do, how did you go through that process yourself and come out as a Bitcoiner? Yeah. Um, what is it? Come, come for the greed, stay for the revolution. <laughs> so, um, you know, I don't even remember. I know, of course, I'll admit to trying different things, right? Coming in, thinking, you know, there's, I, I missed Bitcoin. Right. I mean, you can't miss Bitcoin. But you think at the beginning, I miss Bitcoin. What's some other things that are going on? Um, and I have some technical background. Um, I used to do some some programming and things in college and stuff like that. And I was like, you know, let me get in. And and I was using, you know, layer twos and moving money around for lower transaction fees. And I thought I was so clever. And um, I think we all learned our lesson in 2022. Uh, you know, I was mostly out of it by then. But uh, I think um, it was fun to get into that. But... Um, you know, I, I'm just not technically smart enough to know, right? And for us to sit around and try to figure out what's the next, you know, asset that's 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 going to pump, that's not a meaningful use of my time. Um, you know, I, I have a job that I love, a business that I run, I have a family, and I would rather spend my time doing those things. And my concern was just looking around saying, well, you know, I'm creating value, I hope, in the world. Where do I store it? How do I store it? And that was the moment for me that like took the pressure off, right? I don't have to find the next best investment. I can do the things I like to do in life, help my clients, and then, you know, hopefully save a little bit in uh, the hardest money on earth. Perfect, okay, so it's a perf- <laughs> that's a perfect setup. Now we've established um, the Bitcoin thesis from your side your background and what you do for clients. So now let's talk about Bitcoin as an asset for families, multi-generational wealth storage, and as as an asset in trusts. So how do you want to intro this? Should we talk about what is the place for Bitcoin in a trust and start there? Yeah, I mean, maybe, um, I I hope everyone will stay with us because it's important. Maybe we talk about like, what, what is estate planning? Like, what are we actually talking about here, um, which applies to any asset, right? Are, are people watching the show, or are they going to have Bitcoin? Hopefully, they're going to have other assets, too, along the way, um, and other issues to address from an estate planning standpoint. So it may be helpful to just talk about what is estate planning, so then we can use Bitcoin as an asset that applies to these concepts, Perfect. If, if that's okay. Perfect. Okay. Um, so, obviously, when, when you look at... at your, your life, right? You manage your affairs, right? You pay your bills, you access your accounts, you decide, you know, where you go and what you eat, you make your medical decisions, you might raise your kids if you have kids, right? You do all these things yourself. And from the, the highest level possible, estate planning is talking about how do we transfer authority over any number of these things, payment of bills, over your assets themselves, over children, over medical decisions, over all these things that you do, how do we transfer authority over those things in an efficient way? And by efficient, I mean private. I mean in a tax-efficient manner, um, 
in a way that it reflects your wishes and values. And what people don't realize is they have an estate plan already. They, maybe they haven't seen an attorney, maybe they haven't set anything up. Your state, assuming you're in the US, probably in other places too, there's a built-in estate plan for you. And it says who's in charge, right, if all of a sudden you can't manage your affairs, who gets your stuff, including Bitcoin, if you don't do planning, um, who makes your medical decision, who raises your kids, right? There's this like standard next closest relatives and that may not actually reflect your wishes. Um, and in addition to it not reflecting your wishes, all of those processes, if you don't have a plan, are public, right? The ability to transfer authority over Bitcoin or anything else in your life would go through the court process, at least in the US, if you don't have an estate plan. That means that everyone sees what you own, you know, whom you owe, who's in charge of your stuff. Everything you probably would rather keep private is through the court system, which is expensive and time consuming. So highest level estate planning is coming up with the structures that we need to transfer authority over all these different things in a way that's private and hopefully cost efficient, tax efficient. Okay, perfect. So, <laughs> uh, so it's about transferring authority. So now with regard to Bitcoin, if we have Bitcoin, let's say in a cold storage device in a hardware wallet and you pass away, then it's going to go to your next of kin through a court process in theory. But right. in practice, um, you know, there are different implications. So what what is the first thing that people should think about? Um, is it custodial versus non-custodial or how do they approach yeah. uh, how to put Bitcoin within a trust uh, infrastructure. Sure. Yeah, the, the the thing to consider, and um, and other people have mentioned this on podcasts, I'm, I'm not like breaking new ground here, but it's, it's the most important thing from the planning standpoint, is to think about the two kinds of authority. One is custodial authority. Do you literally have access to something, right? Can you get to it? And in the case of Bitcoin, do you have the keys that would allow you to spend it? The second is legal authority, right? And that is the legal right to spend that Bitcoin or to access that account or to do whatever it is you need to do. You have to have both of these things. Um, you know, as you can imagine, right, in, in both cases, not having the other doesn't make sense. So let's say, for example, you tell your friend, you know, here's, here's where my keys are stored. Here's how you'd be able to get to them. If something happens to me, I want you to have my Bitcoin. Like, you know, you're my guy. Okay, great. But you don't do an estate plan. Something happens to you, he goes. As soon as he goes to access that and let's say send those coins to his own wallet address, well, he might have had custodial authority. He doesn't have legal authority to do that. He's actually breaking the law. And there's laws that have been adopted by most states, kind of a silly acronym called RUFADA. It has to do with ass, uh, authority over digital assets. And so you're basically putting your friend in a position to do something he really shouldn't do. So. On the, on the flip side of this is you set up a plan that says, and we'll talk about the, the details a little bit, my friend has authority or I want my friend to have my Bitcoin, but the keys are missing, right? You've you know, given him that authority, he can't do anything, and um, you have sort of inadvertently made a gift to the rest of us Bitcoiners in the form of lost keys. So don't do that. I'm not interested in that. I don't need that um, increase in value. Yeah, so, so get your stuff in order. Let me clarify that. So if the friend uh, if the friend wrote it on a piece of paper and it said, 
if I die, you have legal authority or you have you get my Bitcoin, mm-hmm. then does that become legal if the that person has a friend and it, they have yeah. a signed uh, just on a piece of paper or something they could present to a court if so so it, it's actually it's a technical question um, and there I there are specific rules around this and I know you know sometimes Bitcoiners don't care about government rules right but you're, if you live here you're forced to care about them in this case so writing down your wishes technically would be a valid will right um, and it's called a holographic will and it is a statement that you write down in your own handwriting and it's clear that it's a testamentary act in other words it's clear that what you're trying to do is assign assets authority to someone upon your death if that's clear and it's clear who gets what in that document you can submit that to court now we are within the court system now this is probate it's public again it's expensive it's time-consuming but that would actually, at a minimum, get us there as far as knowing who gets your stuff. Okay, so let's go back. Let's not get <laughs> sidetracked too right. much. Uh, but I, I just, I just had to understand uh, some of the nuances there. So we have, uh, we have legal authority, custodi- custodial authority. So we have these two issues. Yeah. So now, how does uh, trust planning address that for Bitcoin? Yeah. So the the purpose of trust, and I think we'll talk maybe in a little bit about more complicated trusts, since a lot of you know, legacy wealth is in trusts that, that are, are sort of these dynastic type vehicles. But before we get to that, a lot of estate planning, not in every state, and we're in California, and there's very good reason to have what people call a living trust or a revocable trust. Um, this is effectively the same as a will, right? Who's in charge, who gets what? But it's an entity you create while you're alive, which allows you to fund it. In other words, traditionally, this would work for something like real estate, right? We set up a trust. We actually retitle your home into it. And nothing changes. You live your life. The trust is changeable. You can sell your house and buy a new house, put it in the trust. The goal is, if something were to happen to you, rather than a will which has to go to court, your assets are in this container. They're in the trust. So your trustee, the person you name to be in charge, just like an executor, they can just file a document on title and say, okay, now I'm in charge and I can give this to your beneficiaries or sell it or do whatever they need to do. So the trust is just a more private will and it keeps us out of court. It potentially saves um, some significant significant fees. Um, There's some potential tax savings um, with respect to spouses. We don't have to get into that um, necessarily. But, but that's really what we're talking about when we talk about standard estate planning, is this trust. And so how that applies to Bitcoin is that we have to have some formality showing that it's a trust asset. Now, what I don't want people to do, um, no offense to you know any particular company, is go open a Coinbase account in their trust name. Because yeah, it's in the trust, but you don't own your private keys and we're not solving the other risks that we run by owning this asset, right? Now, that is one way to put something in your trust. If, on the other hand, you do own your private keys, well, we need some formality that we can show that it has been assigned, that it's part of your trust, and we need the trust to have appropriate language to give your trustee authority so they're not in trouble when they go and access it, um, so they have that authority in the document, and 
we then combine that legal authority in the trust so we don't have to go to court with custodial authority instructions okay where is it how do I access it etc and then we we have you know the beginnings of a reasonable plan okay so you <laughs> so you present the custodial option versus the non-custodial option from the trust perspective so now let's talk about that a little bit more as Bitcoiners we have many options in terms of how to store our Bitcoin we can do it on a hardware wallet we can do it on another type of self-custody wallet that is, let's say, either smartphone-based, paper-based, or uh, you know, people have their steel plates with their seed mm -hmm. phrases on them. There, there are different ways to keep physical private keys on our person. There are multi-signature solutions, and then there are full custodial solutions. So what are the pros and cons to each, you've already touched on it a little bit, yeah. but pros and cons generally, and then how do you steer your clients? Which yeah. direction? So I, maybe we'll, we'll just touch on the, the custodial um, option again. And I, I'll, I'll say, I'll admit, there are people who have anxiety, right? As I'm sure you know, about owning their keys and being responsible for them. And in that case where they have, um, you know, Bitcoin on an exchange or something like that, we can be pretty well assured that it's not going to disappear, right? Well, at least from an estate planning standpoint, <laughs> we'll talk about whether the exchange goes down or any of that stuff. Right. Um, so in that sense, there's a comfort that we can call a company, right? This is our, our little comfort blanket back in the old days. We call a company, we show them documents, and they give us the information to, to gain access. In return for that, of course, we're taking the risk of not really owning our asset. We don't know for sure that it is our asset, right? We have a nice interface that shows how much we have. Who knows? Um, so for those people, and which is probably a lot of your audience, right, who want to take responsibility, it's kind of the whole point, is to take responsibility for your wealth. Um, you are taking it into your own hands, right? If you don't plan, if you don't do something reasonable, it might disappear, right? No, there's no third party, there's no one to call. Um, I, you know, I had a client um, just last week, actually, um, someone went to one of those ATMs and, and got scammed. It was, it was a nightmare. And the client's like, yeah, no, so I called Bitcoin. And I'm, uh, it's a serious situation, so I'm trying to keep a straight face. Right. Um, but that's where a lot of people are right, right now, right? Yeah. Um, and, I, <laughs> I, and you say that a lot of the audience, you know, has responsibility of their own keys or has custody or wants to. And... While that is fair, there are both types of people that are our audience too. There are people that have their own keys and there are people that don't. Sure. And so we have to consider both and we have to present the pros and cons. But as you summarize, the con, the, the, the primary con here is that you do not have control of this asset. And in the short history of Bitcoin exchanges, call it 10 years, we've had too many failures and leveraged blow-ups to really have any tr above, let's say, 50% confidence that what we are doing is yeah. a, a, a sound custodial choice. Sure. So uh, now let's move on to the next uh, type of option. Yeah. So um, so for those who are, um, you know, self-custodying, as you mentioned, hardware wallets, software wallets, um, various solutions, you know, when we think about baseline like as as simple as it gets we will have people 
keeping their private keys um, maybe together with their plan. So these are written down. This is paper, yeah. right? Written down, stored safely, um, sometimes a home safe, um, you know, sometimes safe deposit boxes, other things. You know, I hesitate. Um, I can't give people legal advice uh, in this format, but um, I would just be careful um, about knowing s some third-party bank employees or who knows, right? Um, so there's there's kind of going old school, writing it down and keeping it with your documents. That might also include um, instructions for where to find a hardware wallet, a pin, right, other ways to access it, um, things like that. And it's, is it the most secure? Maybe not, but we know we're gonna have access to that. Um, so that's, a, that's an option. There are people who split their keys, um, they shard their keys, um, and that may just be their own control, right? They have in different places. Okay, easy enough. Um, sometimes third parties will hold um, maybe a sharded key, and we'll talk about multi-sig in a minute. Um, you know, as a, as a law firm, for example, like I would not hold a full private key. There's just no way. Um, I might hold a portion of a key, and what would happen is trustee finds your estate planning documents, something happens to you, they have, you know, 8 out of 12, 20 out of 24 words, um, and they would then have to demonstrate authority to the third party for the rest of it, right? Which is, here's a death certificate, or here's a certificate that they don't have capacity, here's the most recent document that says I'm the one in charge, and they're sort of certifying under the law that I have authority so you can disclose to me the rest of what I need to gain access to this. The Bitcoin Layer is sponsored by Foundation Devices. Foundation Devices are the creators of the Passport Bitcoin Hardware Wallet, the Bitcoin Hardware Wallet that you already know how to use. Guys, it's got a gorgeous design. It's got a very sleek interface, very great screen, directional pad that everyone knows how to use. It makes Bitcoin storage easy and accessible to just about everybody. If you've been put off in the past from taking your Bitcoin off exchanges, which we highly advise that you do, your Bitcoin isn't really there. These are fractionally reserved institutions. Look no further, this is extremely simple. Everyone already knows how to use it right out of the box. And better yet, you can get $10 off your purchase when you use code BitcoinLayer at checkout. Go to the bitcoinlayer.com slash foundation to get yours today. Now, on with the video. Just to summarize for the audience that may not have the experience with private key storage or a hardware wallet. When you have a hardware wallet, you what the hardware wallet does is it generates a seed phrase, these are 24 words. You can generate these phrases on your own so that you're not even trusting the hardware wallet company's method of generation. Sure. But basically what you have is you have a device that has keys on it, and these keys access the Bitcoin. Now, the keys are backed up by 24 words, for example. So where do you keep the device is a, is a consideration. Mm -hmm. And once you get the words, they might have a pin code on them. The words themselves might just be standalone enough to access the keys. So where do you store the words? Do you write them down on one piece of paper and keep them in your house? Do you write them down in your estate but only a partial and then give the last four words to your law firm uh, as a backup? And then you have to, so yeah. you just have to think about yeah. how many considerations there are. And Brian is not giving legal <laughs> advice here today. He's explaining to us. We're not, neither of us are giving financial advice either. What we're doing is we're just explaining to the audience 
that there are a lot of considerations when we think about putting Bitcoin into a trust yeah. itself. And if we don't put it into a trust, you basically have a device and words that are up for public review upon your death, potentially, and that can have its own negative considerations. Yeah, yeah, no, it's exactly right. I thought you were literally gonna ask me where to keep it in your house, and I'm, I'm not gonna tell you that. Um, no, no, so, so we've established <laughs> that a trust now can hold Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. And we have established that there are a few ways to do this. So if you have a device that, so can a hardware wallet device be part of a trust and how does that work specifically? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's technical, um, as you know. And when trustees come in, I mean, it's kind of funny because they're like, you know, uh, where's the Bitcoin? And it's like, well, it's, it's, it's on the hardware wallet. I'm like, okay, so the Bitcoins are on the, well, no, they're not technically on the wallet. It's, it's a signing device, right? It's, it kind of just aggregates all the you know UTXOs that this key can spend, and then they look and they're like, it's like that uh, Breaking Bad meme. Like, what are you talking about, Jesse? Like, <laughs> yeah. that's that's the moment with the trustee, right? Um, so, you know what what we want to do is, you know, make sure it's part of the trust, um, but it can't be in the trust because it's just on the ledger, right? So what we're talking about is signing authority. So I mean, calling this thing a signing device is a much better term. Um, I, obviously, I didn't coin that. Many people have said that's a better term for a, a hardware wallet. Um, so what we're basically doing is saying trustees have authority to sign on your behalf. This is a signing device that if someone has to sign for these assets, this is the, the code they would need to do it. So it, it perfectly aligns with how to set up a trust and how to set up authority. Um, and, um, and and maybe we haven't talked about this yet, but the it, it aligns with also like multi-sig capacity because again we're talking about authority and in the sense of you know a trustee or a law firm like me again I would want at most one of those let's say it's two out of three because I don't want authority to be able to move coins but I would want a trustee with signing authority right to be able to contact me and then together we have signing authority right um, it also allows people to have co-trustees, a lot of people have two people in charge for the oversight, um, and by having multi-state capability, which of course you want to do connected to your hardware wallet if you can, um, would establish authority, you'd have oversight, and it's effectively part of your trust. Your trust might even have three trustees, and it says two out of three vote in order to, to do things um, or take action for you, so, you know. Like kind of a, a winding answer for you, but it all is related in my mind. Sure, and so thinking about these devices as signing devices, right, which they are popularly known as, these hardware right. wallets are technically signing devices, right? The Bitcoin isn't on the device, <laughs> exactly. it's not in the device, right? So uh, that, so what I'm understanding is that from the legal lens, the signing device name for a hardware wallet fits perfectly in with the trust uh, infrastructure or the way to think about things. Right. So now, is Bitcoin an investment, quote-unquote investment, for a trust? And is it uh, a suitable investment? And does it work, in your experience, yeah. as a asset that falls in a trust? Yeah. This, to me, is a, is a super interesting 
area. So I'm glad you asked about this because what we'll do is maybe um, shift the, the, the sort of context of this from I'm living, I control my assets, I have a revocable trust, right, to avoid court and maybe save some money. Um, but in that situation, I can do whatever I want. I can invest in anything I want. And if I make a bad choice, it's on me, right? In the context of this duty as a trustee, let's consider someone passes away or leaves assets in what are irrevocable trusts. So these are dynastic trusts, um, generation skipping trusts. They have different names. A lot of wealth, um, significant private wealth, is not actually held in someone's name and social security number, right? We set up multi-generational trusts, which are irrevocable, right? They have their own ID numbers. Um, and these trustees now are not investing for themselves. This is a trustee who is managing assets for a beneficiary. It could be multi-generations, you know, um, kids and grandkids, etc. They have a different kind of you know, obligation, right? They don't get to decide, okay, I want to invest in my friend's startup company, right? They have this duty to manage assets. And so modernly, what that has become is there's this um, sort of you know, prudent investor rule that's kind of applied all over. It's effectively like modern portfolio theory, right? You're not looking at an individual asset for whether it's, you know, um, effective or, or ineffective. You're looking at that asset's place in the overall portfolio. What role does it play? Um, and in, in reality, if you're the trustee and you're in charge of wealth, your job is not to get sued, right? <laughs> That's all you want to do. And so you would typically hire um, an investment advisor, right? Because that's pretty reasonable. If you're the trustee and you hire someone whose expertise is in telling you how to create the perfect you know, savings account, you've now probably met your duty of care. And so you're, you're, on, you're off the hook. So today, if you were to ask me, you know, what percentage of, of these multi-generational trusts own Bitcoin? Probably a pretty small percentage. Mm -hmm. It's private. We don't really know. And I know some family offices are heavily involved. But we don't really know. Um, and I would tell you that as of today, there is no, in, as far as my experience, the, there's no um, anxiety over not having Bitcoin as an allocation in a multi-generational trust. No one's worried they're going to be sued, right? Um, and, you know, will that shift? Um, it's possible. Uh, my, my personal position, not, you know, financial or any other kind of advice, is that it will. Um, a lot of people that I work with are looking at it, you know, saying, well, hey, at a minimum, 1% is insurance, potentially, on the entire 99% of the rest of this multi-generational trust. That's the cost of the trustee fees, or the investment fees or, you know, anything else that goes on every year with that trust. Um, I, when does that happen? I don't know. But I think there there will probably be a shift where at some point it, you may not be meeting your fiduciary duty, this duty to those beneficiaries, if you don't consider, you know, that having that as part of the, uh, the trust makeup. And I wanted to chat with you today because explaining these trust implications is important. But I knew what the punchline of today's conversation would be. 
it would be around this idea of fiduciary duty and whether or not the assets of these multi-generational portfolios are one day going to allocate to Bitcoin because of the fiduciary duty of these trustees to protect the wealth of these families. And what you're saying is currently, not only is it not their fiduciary duty in the eyes of the industry, but very few of them are actually allocated and have made that leap where they have to explain that a 1% position is actually is sound within the portfolio construct. Mm -hmm. Now what you're talking about, what you're proposing is that one day soon, perhaps, it becomes imprudent to not include Bitcoin in these portfolios. And when that happens, it will be a seismic shift for this industry. So can you expand on that? And what are your, what are your full thoughts around this idea of prudent fiduciary duty when it comes to Bitcoin? And now just for the audience, we're, we're leaving the um, you know, small business owner that has their trust vehicle and we're mm -hmm. going to the high net worth and huge family office realm. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I mean, to be clear, uh, there are people in this space. Um, just from the more institutional standpoint, not a lot that I'm aware of. Um, and some of it um, traditionally has been um, custodial risk mm -hmm. um, because it doesn't matter the performance of the asset if you lose it or you put it on FTX or, you know, something like that, right? And so there's, especially after last year, some hesitation um, where, you know, we're balancing risk and reward. I think that that's a short-term problem, right? Custodial options and comfort with this asset, that's just a, a learning process. Um, so that that part, is, it will naturally occur over time. I think that more people than maybe we think have this on the radar as far as, it, as, far as an asset class. And so uh, in my mind, once the, the, the more administrative issues are ironed out, I think it will probably be pretty quick and uh, everyone's ready as far as, as far as I'm concerned um, to, to have a safe allocation to this. Um, and some people do it um, in more of a derivative way. Maybe they own companies that own Bitcoin MicroStrategy. Um, maybe they own miners, but, right? They're doing things that are more um, along the lines of a typical security. And so there's some indirect um, exposure already. Um, but I think that the, the fundamentals of the actual asset, I, th I think they're, they're probably better known um, at, the, at the higher net worth level than it would appear. Um, and it's, it's more of just administrative at this point. So they want to be long, but they can't figure out some of the basics around even just raw custodial risk and how to store it because of how young the infrastructure is, but it is progressing. There are ways to store the asset yourself, but from these larger vehicles, are they even allowed to self-custody those uh, Bitcoin? And yeah. is, is that something that prevents them from it? Um, I mean, they, they are, um, but the, the more responsibility they take themselves, the more risk they're running. 
right? And until we feel that not owning the asset isn't meeting our standard of care, the risk isn't worth it, right? Um, and and that is, you know, for the most part, it's going to be connected to um, wealth managers, right? Because that's who trustees are utilizing for advice. Um, and so those those will go together. As you start to see maybe more typical wealth management firms come into the Bitcoin space, you'll see trustees of multi-generational trusts just naturally um, doing similar things. Does Fidelity change the game for you? I mean, they've been doing R&D in Bitcoin for a decade. Yeah. And mining Bitcoin, I mean, they were, you know, one of the first yeah. big companies to publicly divulge that they were mining Bitcoin. And this is when Bitcoin yeah. uh, was barely five years old. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a credibility there that, again, if, if you, and I can only speak to the, the fiduciary standpoint, if I'm representing a trustee who wants to make sure that they can't be on the hook for lost monies um, or the performance of the portfolio, we need to be able to show what their action is reasonable. And having a big player in the financial world, you know, in this space, that's, that's a good indication that we're not doing something crazy, right? Like there's legitimacy here. You're meeting your standard of care as a trustee. Um, and so it's one of many factors that, that helps us um, just show that, you know, we're doing the right thing. Sure. So let's get back to uh, more of the Bitcoin layers audience. We have a lot of small business owners, uh, MDs, lawyers that are subscribers and watch our channel. So talk about, and I know you're not giving tax advice here or legal advice, but talk about the tax implications of Bitcoin when if you pass away, how is it taxed? Yeah. And uh, some of the retirement vehicles that people should consider around Bitcoin. How, how should they be thinking about that? Yeah. Okay. So we'll, we'll probably, there's a lot of different taxes, right? As uh, we know. <laughs> and so we'll sort of break them down, um, you know, by category. So from the, from an income tax standpoint, right? As we know, Bitcoin is, is treated as a commodity, right? Um, which subjects it to short-term or long-term capital gains. Um, so, you know, in my mind, there's, there's not a lot of capital gains type planning to do here. I mean, the best planning is don't sell your Bitcoin, right? There's no capital gain. Um, so, uh, for people who do, um, obviously to the extent it is above your cost basis, you're going to pay a capital gain. Um, and there's a formula for how to figure out what that is. And you can segregate accounts. Like this is my account that I buy and sell. So your bases are not sort of commingled. You can keep track of what your cost basis is versus your sale price. Um, do I recommend that? Obviously, it's up to you. But, um, you know, that's something to consider. Um, and upon passing away, right, um, there's a state tax. So we've got capital gains if you sell something while you're alive. Um, and then if you, and I'm not going to talk about income tax on yield, by the way, because there's no yield on Bitcoin. Um, so if you pass away, there's a state tax, right? And, you know, like it or not, um, this is a tax that applies after you've, you know, sort of accumulated assets. You've paid income tax along the way. Maybe you've paid capital gains. You have what's left. You've been subjected to inflation <laughs> along the way. And now you pass away. And there's an estate tax. And now I'm talking United States. This is a federal estate tax. Some states have their own state estate tax. California does not. 
Now, it's fairly generous, depending on your point of view. Right now, you have almost $13 million you can pass of Bitcoin, real estate, other assets, whatever it is, before that tax kicks in. So in other words, you'd have to be above that number. And once you are, there's a extra 40% tax, so 40 cents on the dollar, for every dollar you give away above that number, right? Um, and that exemption is also the amount you can give away while you're alive. It's the same 13 million, right? So if you were to try to say, well, I'll give my Bitcoin, Bitcoin away now, and I'll give 10 million away, well, when you pass away, you only have three left. Uh, and so it's the same number, and um, it's a moving target, right? That number can be whatever Congress says it is. It can go up. Typically, it goes up, but it can also come down. Um, and so when we talk about that generational wealth, in those trusts, what we're trying to do is eliminate that tax that occurs every time a generation dies because we're chipping away each time. And so we can fund these trusts that can last a very long time. And each time a generation dies, because they don't own it, it can pass along and there's no estate tax. So that's, that's the theory behind this. Um, so that's capital gains and estate. I'll stop there before we jump straight into like IRAs and stuff, because there's a lot going on. Yeah, no, and I, I do want to bring in IRAs because when at this point, um, not everyone has a trust set up and they may be accumulating Bitcoin in, in a different vehicle. So what are the considerations outside of trust vehicles when it comes to other retirement vehicles yeah. and where Bitcoin might fit in? Yeah. So I've, as you and know, is I've, it allowed? That's yeah. the important part of it. Yeah. So it's allowed, right? Um, you can hold Bitcoin, um, and lots of other assets inside a retirement plan. Um, as I have shared with you, I've thought about this a little bit, um, and I think we always need to kind of have our antenna up when we're applying like traditional savings vehicles, fiat savings to Bitcoin, because the assets are very different, and sort of look ahead and do the best we can to, to determine like, does this make sense? So to answer your question, yes, you can own Bitcoin in a traditional type IRA or a Roth IRA. And so what I think would be useful is to just quickly, you know, kind of lay out the, the basics on those two things um, and and then maybe apply some Bitcoin scenarios to them. Um, I'll try not to get too, uh, too out there on that. But um, I'll, a lot of people have discussed the custodial issue on the IRAs. So I'll leave that aside. There are ways to hold your own private keys and have Bitcoin in an IRA. Most, as far as I know, don't have that, right? They use a third party custodian. So just be aware, but we'll set that aside because uh, we talked about custody. So let's talk about the, the vehicles themselves. So uh, a regular IRA, right? This is our you know savings technology that we have now. And let's say you can put in $6,500 $6, in a given year into an IRA, a traditional IRA. Well, what you're doing is you're telling the government, you have to have that earned income, and you're telling the government, I don't want to pay tax on that, right? If I keep it and I'm at 30% total tax, I'm going to pay two grand. Well, I don't want to have 4000 I want to have 6500 and so I'll put it in my IRA. Okay, great. We kept the money, and now it's in this tax-deferred vehicle. There are benefits of this, of this um, umbrella that, that you have. Um, one would be being able to buy and sell right, inside of it without capital gain. It's ignored. Two would be income, 
right, yield. It can generate money and you don't pay income tax on it, right? So you can see this is, this is very like inflation-based savings. Um, so the negative of the traditional IRA is when you're older, you have to take it out. And when you do, you'll now pay the income tax on it, right? At some point, you've got to pay tax on this. And so let's say over the time you take it out, you pay half of that, depending on your tax bracket, in tax. So we'll, we'll come back to Bitcoin on that, but keep that in our minds on this tax deferred. Next would be like a Roth IRA, similar. You can put 6,500 in there, but this is after tax money. So you've already paid the tax. So why am I putting it in there? Well, what you're doing is saying, I want those other benefits. I want to be able to buy and sell without capital gain. I want yield without income tax. And at the end of the day, long time from now in retirement, you can pull it out if you need it and there's no tax. You've already paid the tax. So that's a benefit. Um, so those are the, the, the two big categories. There's more details in there, but I think that's good for now applying it to Bitcoin. So. Can I keep going? Yeah, go okay. for it. So let's, I mean, let's take a couple of just scenarios, right? One scenario is, you know, Bitcoin doesn't work as a money. Okay, if you think that, you probably shouldn't be putting your retirement into it in the first place. So we're not worried about that. Let's say, you know, by the time you retire, it has um, become similar to gold in a, in a sense of a store of value, right? And it's a million dollars, right? So you buy at 30000 and it becomes a million dollars. And let's put that into our, into our IRA scenarios. So on the traditional IRA, right, you, you, put the, you buy the Bitcoin, you got your $30,000 Bitcoin in there. It's not yielding anything. So you're not, well, it shouldn't be yielding anything. Don't, <laughs> don't chase yield. So you're not getting the benefit of this, of this container, this IRA container. I hope you're not trying to buy and sell and time it to your call. But I mean, you're smarter than me, right? So let's say you're not, you're just holding it. So you're not gaining the benefit of avoiding capital gain. And now it's a million dollars and you have to take it out. And let's say you're gonna pay $500,000 in tax over that time to get your million. That doesn't seem great, um, but it's something you would wanna be aware of now, right? Um, similarly, take the scenario where maybe it, Bitcoin has some portion of monetary premium from a lot of other assets, right? Real estate, bonds, other things, and it's 10 million. Well, again, we're not benefiting by having it in this wrapper. And now you're going to lose half of your you know, $10 million Bitcoin how, 30 years from now or whatever it is, right? Um, so I would, I would be careful in the traditional IRA to, to hold an asset like this. I don't think the benefits outweigh the potential future costs if you believe in it. Um, the Roth is less risk. And so, again, you're not capturing the benefits of buying and selling or getting yield, but at least you've paid the tax already. So one th something someone might consider is, let's say you have your traditional IRA and it owns Bitcoin and you convert it to Roth. You can pay the tax now. Let's say you pay that 10,000 because you're at a lower tax bracket now right, as you're you know coming up in the world and you pay that with other monies so you still have your full bitcoin but now it's in the roth ira so now again with our scenarios a million dollars well you can leave it in you can take it out if you need to and spend it there's no tax when you do that later 
So that's going to make a lot more sense. Um, similarly, $10 million, okay, you're not forced to take it out and lose half of it in tax. Um, your beneficiaries will have to take it out, but that's another story. Um, so the, the only issue there is we still have had this container that's this Roth IRA, and there's maybe custodial risk if you don't own it, and there might be fees along the way. And there's been no income tax benefit, right? Because you haven't done the traditional sort of fiat moves of buying and selling and, and paying and avoiding income tax. So I just want people to be aware of what they're getting in these vehicles and does it make sense for them. That's great. Uh, now, not, not that I don't want people to buy this asset and be involved in it. Sure. Um, no, but they have to understand that are they putting it in a vehicle because there's a, a product that's being sold to them or um, and, and some of the considerations on how to store it. And I think we've covered a lot of them today. So I want to conclude by maybe taking any of your lessons that you've learned from clients or your experience as a trust attorney and and bring in Bitcoin and just how do you see Bitcoin playing into some of your experiences and how do you think it fits in with your career going forward as a trust attorney? Yeah, um, a philosophical question. I just went from technical to now philosophical. Please, let's go for we, it. We got we to shift. Um, I, there's the funny thing about estate planning is there's this kind of unspoken tension when we're talking about wealth. Um, and what, what that is, is that for my clients, for my wealthy clients, there's almost no amount that's too much to leave their children because money becomes less valuable over time because there's income tax and then capital gains and then estate tax. There's this feeling that th there's there's not too much money to put aside and we and we spend our time creating these like mega trusts that will fund beneficiaries for generations okay great but when you ask those clients well what's meaningful to you like what are the moments in your life that um what really brought you satisfaction it's it's not having the money right specifically it's when they didn't have the money and they had to earn it Right when they like literally putting in work, and maybe they built a business and they employed people and changed their lives. Um, maybe they had the security to sort of have a family and put their time into that, or they were coaching, or they were volunteering. And so, we have these mega trusts creating lots of money available for beneficiaries who really ought to have the opportunity to go have these accomplishments for themselves. But it's challenging because if someone asks you, do you, do you want money? You say yes, right? It's really hard in this situation where obviously you have to have your, your basic needs met, right? We know that. I'm not saying, you know, it's awesome to be, you know, really struggling. It's not. But you almost don't know that you don't want it, right? And it's, to me, it carries over into how we're living our lives today, which is, we're just taking shots at wealth, right? Meme coins, right? I, it, I, don't, I almost don't blame people because you look around and you say, well, what is my chance of actually having, you know, meaningful savings and leisure and not having two jobs? I have to take these crazy risks, right? Um, 
we're all going to pool money together and give it to a small group, right? And if you didn't get in early enough, well, you're the one of the ones giving your money to others. That doesn't make sense in the context of what should be meaningful in life. And it's the same when beneficiaries just receive a whole bunch of money for not doing anything. And so what this has kind of had me look at is like, what what kind of stuff is meaningful to people? How do we set up a legacy where like beneficiaries have a chance to be proud of what they're doing? Um, and, you know, part of this asset is sort of, I don't know, sort of embodies like doing the work, right? Like that's what's meaningful to you. Um, and you don't need to worry about, you know, having more and more because if successful, it will go up in value indefinitely, right? You don't have to stress about that. You can do the things you want to do in life. You can have a job you love like me. You can have a family. You can do these all these other things without worrying that, um, you know, the only way to get it is to create, you know, these kids that just have access to, to money um, from this trust. So it's been a, a weird journey for me um, from envying, like, this this wealth and then realizing that there's a lot more to life than that. Um, so, so yeah, do, do something valuable, do something you're proud of, maybe, maybe save some of that value in, in Bitcoin. Bitcoin as a savings technology, <laughs> that's how we like to present it. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today at the Bitcoin Layer. Please tell the audience uh, where they can find you or your firm sure. and your services. Sure. The, uh, there's, uh, there's this new technology, it's called the LinkedIn, <laughs> if you don't know it. Um, so I have, I'm pretty private um, from the standpoint of my personal life. So I have a professional LinkedIn. Um, you are welcome to find me there if you even know what it is. Um, I have a law firm, um, via law firm. You can find me there. Um, I also work with uh, Morton Wealth as this wealth planner. Um, and you're welcome to find me there. You can track me down if you want to talk to me, and I appreciate it very much. Brian Standing, uh, thank you for joining us today at the Bitcoin Layer. You're welcome, Nick. Thanks. The Bitcoin Layer is sponsored by Foundation Devices. Foundation Devices are the creators of the Passport Bitcoin Hardware Wallet, the Bitcoin Hardware Wallet that you already know how to use. Guys, it's got a gorgeous design. It's got a very sleek interface, very great screen, directional pad that everyone knows how to use. It makes Bitcoin storage easy and accessible to just about everybody. If you've been put off in the past from taking your Bitcoin off exchanges, which we highly advise that you do, your Bitcoin isn't really there. These are fractionally reserved institutions. Look no further. This is extremely simple. Everyone already knows how to use it right out of the box. And better yet, you can get $10 off your purchase when you use code BitcoinLayer at checkout. Go to the BitcoinLayer.com slash foundation to get yours today.